It's interesting though because isn't that one of the hardest things for us to grasp? To get our mind around the fact that we are loved by God. And then also to remember that we ought to love one another and then learning how to do that. In the good days, in the days of sunny picnics and bright flowery blooms and birds singing and kites flying, it's easy to love each other, isn't it? But when conflict or stress or change come, that is when the true test of divine love comes to, comes to completion. That's when the true test of our spiritual maturity begins to reveal itself. And beloved, no matter how long we are in the faith, no matter how hard we have tried, no matter how confident we are in grace, we will be put to the test. And we will be found wanting. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, shall never fail. He shall never fail. Because we will be found wanting, it doesn't mean that we do not continue to strive. For we see those things taught of us in Scripture. And as James teaches us in his letter, we can expect nothing from the Lord, nothing whatsoever, if we do not follow the simple instructions given to us there. Though God works in His own way, in His own time, He works through the means that He has prescribed, found, and revealed in His Word. We're continuing in Genesis this morning. We're going to go through... Chapter 4, before we get into 1 Timothy. And uh, today we're going to dive into chapter 3. But at the end of what we know as chapter 2, there is a phrase there, and this will be the focus of our teaching this morning. And that is verse 25 of chapter 2, where it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Verse 1 of 3, let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food with her eyes, and saw that it was a delight, uh, and, and that it was a delight, to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make ones wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and gave also some to her husband who was standing with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent that you have made deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May we understand the word of the Lord. It's interesting when you think about the idea of what people call liberal. If you grew up using recipes um, or doing woodworking, you know that instruction. Liberally apply. Add a liberal portion. That's like an unmeasured portion. Just put it on there. Just stack it up. When you get a to-go box, you want a liberal portion. You don't want, you know, three nuggets and four fries. You want to you you feel and hear that styrofoam squeak, you know, and snap. And it's interesting because I consider myself one of the highest persons of conservatism when it comes to things of spiritual knowledge and the Word of God. Yet I get blamed for being liberal more times than I would like to count. And the reason for that is because we have put connotation on those terms because of political standings, which by the way, by the way I could destroy your political viewpoints in just about four, four or five seconds. But that's not what the pulpit's for. To show every one of us in here we are all liberal and we are all conservative in some things. And neither, none of us are right in anything. 
we are wrong in all things. So, when I think of being called a liberal because of the way God has written Genesis, and we read it according to its writing, it bothers me. Why? Because I don't want to be a liberal theologian. I don't want to be the fruity guy who believes it's all about puppy dogs and rainbows. And that, you know, this pretty little God and his pretty little garden with his pretty little people. And... But I'll tell you, it is extremely imaginative to think, as I've said already, that science must be understood in order to grasp the revelation of God's sovereignty in the context of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. I've said it over and over again. This is week number 12 in our little Genesis introduction. And I want you to know that without proper application and understanding of this text, you and I, none of us, can understand the rest of the letter, nor can we understand the anything written whatsoever in the Old Testament and we find ourselves in need of some instruction. Well, beloved, what we see here in Genesis, in this outline, is clearly revelation. That's what it is. It's revelation. God is revealing Himself to us through the pen of Moses the prophet, who, by the way, was not with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sometimes I think we just need to be reminded of that. Here's Moses, some millennia after Israel, <laughs> writing all of these things down by the Spirit of God. Genesis is not an exhaustive history of life, of the existence of everything. For if we were to get an exhaustive history, scientifically even, even of just the makeup of a cellular structure, I don't know if any of you ever took organic chemistry, but most folks don't find that very interesting, much less glorious. Yet some people love it. Some people avoid it. The scripture here in Genesis is to show us the details as much as needed to see the sovereign power of God in His work, and it's not complete. It's not meant to explain and expose everything. But one of the errors that we find when we read this narrative, yes, this is a, an event that took place in history. But the reason that it's one paragraph is because it's not necessary to dive into the details. God is revealing Himself, and as He reveals Himself in the creation of things, He reveals Himself in the creation of humanity, He'll reveal His sovereignty in Himself in the sin of humanity, and He'll reveal Himself in the redemption of humanity, which is the point of Genesis, which is the point of God's sovereign work with the people of Israel, Abraham's seed. And then we see the Gospels, and through the Gospels, then the teaching of the apostles to live life according to the Gospel is the New Testament from which we get the lens through which we read the Old Testament to understand the revelation of God from the beginning. It's one story, one message, one God, one revelation. 
There are no other stories in the Bible but the revelation of God and His sovereignty to create a people for Himself that He has redeemed justly through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. That is it. There is nothing else to learn. There is nothing else to see. There is nothing else to establish that is beneficial for the church at large though we do enjoy digging a little deeper. And sometimes we dig a little deeper and we don't realize we're just a few inches from the sewer line. And if we stick that axe in the wrong side, we get flooded with the wrong type of material and then we are going to end up being in the same boat that Adam was in and Eve was in and we would not be listening to what God has revealed for our good. And we will be like God that we have wisdom that we did not have before. Naked. There's a segue for you. I mean, think about this. God has created the world and everything in it according to its kind, showing He can take nothing and make something and out of nothing making something, this picture of chaos became a picture of order, became a picture of life, became a picture of, if I can go so far to say, I think it's very clear, separation. A word for that is holiness. A word for that is sanctification. Where God is separating things according to His will, according to His purposes, and according to His promises. And He's separating everything. And all of these pictures, as we've already seen, point to the one true image of God in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Not Adam, not Eve. They are statues of that perfection. They have never bore the image in its reality. Jesus Christ is the only true image of the invisible God. And then when we are in Him, just as Eve was taken out of her husband as the same flesh, as one person, now two, together as one. Again, so are the church and Jesus Christ united through His flesh. This is review. I preached this last week and the week before. And now we see this perfect picture, but it's not a picture of redemption. It's a picture of promise. It's a picture of sovereign life. That when we are in Eden... That means we are in the promises and the provision of God for life. When we are with God in the cool of the day, we're walking perfectly. And we see God showing that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So out of Adam, only out of Adam could there come another creature that was of equal standing with Adam. So only out of Christ could there come a bride that was of equal standing with Christ not of her own righteousness, but coming from the body of the righteous one. And so on and so forth. And we've proven through the apostolic writing that this is not conjecture, this is not imagination, this is direct didactics from the apostles who teach us, as Paul talks about in Colossians 3 and, 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 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 5 in the context of marriage, that the two shall become one flesh. This is mysterious, but I say that the creation of husband and wife in the first marriage is just a microscopic picture of the complete macrocosmic reality of Jesus Christ and the revelation of Him himself as the God-man so that he can make himself a church, a gathering, a body, a bride as the husband. 
past the head. And then this sentence in verse 25 of chapter 2 is a segue between this creation of this great promise, a picture of a Savior that God says is not good, that man should be alone. Beloved, if we are alone and to ourselves, even in a state of innocence without sin, it is just a matter of minutes before we fall into sin because that is what the human condition consists of. That is what we do. When the resolve is that the creature manifests commitment and determination to maintain his self or herself in life, even when life is right there at our fingertips to touch and eat forever, we will always screw it up. God purposed the fall. God decreed the fall. God said, let there be light so that there could be a fall, that He could be the Redeemer of His people, proving He was the only one who is powerful enough and only good enough and the only righteous one and that everything that exists, including and especially salvation, is by His sovereign power alone. That's why Paul calls the gospel the power of God in Romans 1.16. for which he is not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the good report, the story of goodness of Jesus the Messiah. That's what it says. When you say gospel in your head, say good story, good revelation, good report. That's what it means. Gospel is a transliterated, discombobulated expression of a word that doesn't exist in our world. It was made to sound spiritual. It means nothing in vernacular. It means good report. Digging through some old stuff, I found some old journals from high school. Some of you have talked about that. Reading some of my thoughts and wisdom, you know. Nothing like a 17-year-old's wisdom. Thankfully, there was no internet. There was no social media because, boy, I'd have blogged it all up. And bogged it all up. Thank God there was none of that, even in my 20s. We thought cordless telephones were the next awesome thing. But I found one of my report cards, my junior year report card. I don't know where my senior box is or my sophomore box. It probably got set on fire. But that junior year, I, had, I found that box. Look at that. I found my report card in my junior year. I did very well. Had A averages and all sorts of things. I did, honestly though, have a very bad midterm geometry exam. I don't know why, because I ended up with an A in the class. I love geometry. But that report card, that good report, I remember always looking forward to bringing that report card home, and on the back there was a place for my parent to sign that they had read the good report. And underneath all of those signatures was a place for comments and thoughts and concerns. The teachers could write some things there. And there was never anything written there but, Well done! Good report. Keep up the good work. Talks a little too much in class. That was freshman year. A good report. That's what the gospel is. It's God sending a good report home to us. Revealing Himself through this good news. To say, hey, I am the creator of all things. 
I have a purpose in redeeming a people for myself. I have created all the necessary means Every breath, through every molecule of everything that floats in the air, even the very nature of the fact that this dust particle right there has a purpose in my design for the redemption of my people. I am powerful over that and nothing exists apart from me, especially your eternal life. Let me share that report with you. That's called the gospel. The gospel is not a group of magic words, a group of magic propositions. It's God revealing Himself to us. And it starts in the very beginning, pun intended. Let there be light. Who is the light? John 3. Jesus says, I'm the light that comes into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. He's talking to the most spiritual man that lived on the earth that day. The most devout Jew that, that was alive at the moment. Nicodemus. The one that loved the Word of God to the point that he taught it. He, he had the, the moniker, the teacher of all of Israel. That's what Jesus called him. That he loved darkness. What does that mean? He saw the Word of God. He had it memorized since childhood. And there was no verse numbers. Beloved, you ever went through Isaiah without verse numbers? That's insanity. I mean, I read every day a verseless Bible because I read it. Because the numbers make me think, see. I segment things with numbers. So when I read the Bible, but when I'm looking for something, I need numbers. I need a GPS coordinate. I need an address. I just go somewhere that go west and find the place you're looking for. <laughs> west? i got to wait till sundown to figure that out if I'm not in my hometown. You read the Bible and you see. You see, this, you see this compass. You see this focus. You see this promise. And if we look to ourselves, we are, we are not prepared to live. And the intention of God is to show us His power in the promises of the good report of this gospel. This amazing grace, this amazing love for His people that's perfected. So here is Adam and Eve, perfect, innocent, sinless, but not righteous. For only God is good. Only God is righteous. And only that which God calls good is good. And God said it is not good for the man to be alone because He knew that if man were by himself, man would fall into death. And the funny picture about that is is that it makes us all a bride, beloved. We are all the woman in the economy of grace. We are all the bride. Jesus Christ is our bridegroom. Jesus Christ is our husband. Which the literal word for husband means head. Head. I'm not translating the word head to Arabic here. Great. We're bilingual now. They're always listening, beloved. Did y'all get that? What was I saying? Head. There we go. <laughs> Our husband. 
And the, and the identifying reality of where these people were in the presence of God with the promise of life and the provision of God in Eden and the presence of walking with the Savior, walking with the Creator, is that they both were naked. And they both, and I want to change the word here to make better sense, were not embarrassed. That's a better translation. They were both physically naked. And they were both not embarrassed. Now think about that for a second. There's a beautiful picture there. That in our world we can't, we can't approach it. Because for some people, nakedness is not a place of vulnerability. We have nudie colonies and nudie pictures and nudie books and all sorts of ideas. But for the most part, in every section of culture, to be completely naked is a place of vulnerability. To be completely naked. I mean, you know the nightmare that most people have? You're at school, and you look down, and you've got no pants on. And then you can't run or walk. You know, it's like... It's weird stuff that our mind does for us. But it is an embarrassment. It is embarrassing to be caught unprepared and unclothed. But when we are in a state of innocence, when we are in the presence of the life promises of God as our Creator, everything that Adam and Eve needed and everything that they were was good. And they did not need anything because they were clothed in the goodness of God's promises and provision. So they were naked but they were clothed in goodness. They were clothed in the place where God was. They were in His presence. They were under, the, under His wing, if you will. They had everything they needed. They needed nothing. They were in a state of innocence, evidenced by the fact they were not embarrassed. I mean, you know, I've got a grandson now. That's weird to say. I don't feel like I should have grandson, but it's awesome. You get to love him and hold him and send him home. I mean, he's not even three months old yet, and we're already in that mode. We get to send him home, you know? No 2 a.m. feedings. But when you bathe him or change him or change his outfit, he doesn't care. He's like, hurry up, somebody's coming in here. There's no concern with a child when they're outside and they need to go to the restroom, they just pull down their pants and go. And we teach them, no, 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 we're living in sound. We, we don't live in the woods anymore. You can't pee by the mailbox, son, please. Because they they're unashamed. They're not embarrassed by that. It's just, I have to go and these pants are in the way. Let's go. That's what you do. And now that's like a criminal offense. You go to prison for stuff like that. Become a registered sex offender. I just had to go to the bathroom. Well, now you're going to prison where you get no door for your bathroom. <laughs> they weren't embarrassed in their nakedness. They needed nothing more. And what's incredible about that is they desired nothing more 
They weren't contemplating what they needed. They, you know, we need to find some socks for the winter and some clothes here. We need to figure out a way. You know, I, I just don't think I like the way this grass feels to my nakedness. We need to find something to sit upon. It was no concern. They didn't need a thing. They were in no state. They had no, they had no condition to realize that there was anything wrong because there was nothing wrong. And there was never a time where they were aware that they were naked. See, being naked in the garden was good because it is how God made them. So the new couple were good, as they were supposed to be, not embarrassed by anything, not in need of anything, and able to rest in the promises and provision of God for life and happiness, for life and joy. This is a picture of sovereignty. So they were clothed in the goodness of God as He had made them. They had no shame before one another, and they had no embarrassment before God. But something happened. And I'm going to press this, and then we'll get into it, and between this week and next week, we're going to prove it. But there's one sin that took place in the hearts of this first couple, and specifically Eve, and that was suspicion. Suspicion. And that's what happened in the garden. Eve became suspicious of God. She saw all that was there. She saw the promises that God had made. She saw the provision that provided life. But the serpent added something to that. He told the truth, but didn't finish telling the truth. See, that's how it works. That's how it works. And our minds become suspicious. Hmm. Never thought about that before. Of course you haven't. That's why I planted it in your head. Now you're suspicious of me saying suspicion. All it takes is a word. All it takes is a negative connotation. All it takes is a, a suggestion. And then next thing I know, I can have some of you barking like dogs. Meowing like chickens. You ever seen a hypnotist? It wasn't hypnosis, it was just a thought. See, y'all are not paying attention. If somebody did jump up and start barking right now, I don't know what I'd do. This is something the flesh desires. This is why suspicion is so common among us. We are suspicious of the promises of God. How do we know? Because we don't believe them. We believe them when all is well and when we're focused, when we're together. Yes, the promises of God, the Bible says yes. But then our faith is tested when we are tempted by our flesh. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so Adam and Eve seek to find wisdom and perfection and completion in something outside of God's provision. All is well with the world, naked, not embarrassed, everything you ever need, you're going to live forever. Do not eat of that tree, and then the temptation comes along. That's all it takes. Now, we're talking about Genesis 3, but we want to bowl on over to James chapter 1 real quick. And we want to look there and realize that there is some 
important things we need to understand about this temptation of this first couple. First, we need to know that God does not, nor has He ever tempted anyone in the whole history of creation. God cannot tempt someone. Because for God to tempt someone, it would mean that God would have to offer evil or promote sinful behavior in in that context. But God does put people to the test. In other words, there was a test taking place in the garden, one that was proven to fail because God had decreed the fall in order that the point of creation could be fulfilled and that to the praise of His glorious grace, He would redeem a people for Himself. This is difficult for us to grasp, and I think the Scripture in and of itself will teach us these things, but it's not supposed to cause us to go so deeply into our thought that we miss the point. In James chapter 1, in verse 12, which is sort of where we are midweek, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now this isn't a condition of receiving the crown of life. This is a condition of the fact that the test is coming and we're going to get through the test. And eventually the season of testing will be over because the crown of life is ours guaranteed in Christ Jesus. Because God has promised the crown of life to those who love Him. But let no one say, verse 13, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. God doesn't lure us in evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. And I want you to see that for a second. That's important to know. We read Genesis through James. See, We read Genesis through John. We read Genesis through Luke. We read Genesis through Paul. We don't read them through Genesis. So here we have this first couple, and in the garden, God sent the serpent. How did the snake talk, folks? The picture of the idea of serpent is a depiction of the enemy. The enemy operates as God has willed him to operate. We see in Job, which is the oldest writing of the Bible. Of course, the creation is the oldest account, of course. But Job is the oldest document of our canon. And the scripture starts out with Job, uh, with with. Lucifer with the enemy, with the fallen angel, in the presence of God, for nothing can escape the presence of God. And God asks questions to the devil, just like he asks questions of Adam and Eve, not because he needs to know, because he wants to engage so that it can be recorded for our instruction and the revelation of his nature and character. He says, well, you know, what you up to? And the devil says, you know what, you know what I'm up to. It's like Isaiah. Do you think these bones can come together? Well, you know, Lord. Why are you asking me? You're the Lord. I mean, you know. What you up to? The devil's like, you know what I'm up to. You threw me down here to prowl around the earth to see what I can destroy and devour. I'm eating up stuff. I'm tearing up stuff, but <laughs> you know that. And then God says, what you think about Job as a target? I mean, I want to put this in perspective for us. Have you considered my servant Job? 
or King James, have thou considereth Jobeth. No. I'm not considering Job. Are you, God, you know what I'm doing. You know Job has got all your protection. You've got him in your right pocket. What is this? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show myself faithful by allowing you to destroy everything but Job's physical life. I want you to kill his children. I'm going to let you kill his friendships. I'm going to let you destroy his marriage. I'm going to let you take his money. I'm going to let you tear down his houses. I'm going to let you destroy everything he has. And at the end of it all, he will praise me for it. So it shall be. Now see, people have a hard time with that revelation. Because we have, we have pigeonholed and blocked up, really. We've sort of put God into a square or to a hole, and we've cemented Him over into our own ideologies that this is who God is, and this is how God is, and there's nothing that's going to change that. No, God reveals how He is, and God has revealed that He is sovereign even over evil. And He has purposed it and decreed it for His purposes to the praise of His glory because what He does is righteous, you understand. And I won't say what's next in my mouth because it will cause a lot of confusion. But we know what is righteous by knowing what God does. God is not bound to a set of parameters in which we deem righteous. He is righteous in all that he does. And so here is Job then destroyed, and Job says some amazing things. The Lord gives. The Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now how could Job do that? Because God in His Spirit granted Job divine faith. Job wasn't strong. Job wasn't uh, you know, stoic. Job doubted. Job played questions with God. Job wanted to know all the answers. And then all of a sudden, by just a mere turn of a thought, God granted Job to see, to savor the, the, the promises and the provision of God. Though you slay me, I will praise you. That's gospel. That's a good report. And it's been going on since the very first people ever walked this earth. The good report is that God will keep us from death. Who's us? His people. When we are enticed, we are enticed, James 1.14, by our own desire, then our own desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What is sin? Missing the mark of God's righteousness. You want to put that in a, a, a real layman's term? Put it in the second grade? Sin is not being God and not doing what God wants to be done. No one is good but God. 
So only God can make us like Himself. And we know that that is through imputation. He credits us His righteousness. He doesn't make us righteous. And when sin has grown up completely, it brings forth death. And I love what James says in in the very next sentence. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change, no variation, and no shadow. Of His own will he the God in heaven our father brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures do you hear Genesis 1 and 2 in that fruits the trees planted in the presence of God are those who have come because of the love of God eternally, foreknowledge in Jesus Christ to His promises. So Adam and Eve separate themselves from the provision of God by desiring what naturally is desirable in their flesh before they ever willfully sin. We talked about this in our first week or two, I think, but you know, Genesis is really set up into five sections broadly. But the first, or in two halves, but the first half of Genesis up through the end of chapter 11 deals with the condition of God creating and promising and man messing up that provision or denying or rebelling against that provision. And that the consequence of that comes by the righteous justice and wrath of God, and then the promise of redemption comes through that consequence. The gospel is seen there. And so in creation, the first three, we see that fall that we are here today to look at. And then God promises the Redeemer, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. You see, That's how we know what He's talking about. And then in chapter 4, as you'll see what happens in chapter 4, these first siblings are worshiping God according to His commands and they're both doing it identically well. But God rejects one and accepts the other. God is separating and redeeming. God is bringing justice and mercy. Murder. And by the time we get to chapter 6, the totality of the world is murderous. Matter of fact, that is one of the reasons that God tells Noah that He's going to destroy the earth and kill everybody in it but eight people. And the ark was created in such a way that it would only house eight people. But yet Noah preached, get on the boat or die. Stay in the garden or die. Eat of the tree of life or die. And then in chapter 9, we see a man worshiping the world, worshiping the moon on a ziggurat in Ur, which still stands today if you've been over there. I've not been over there, but I've got a lot of brothers and friends and others who've been over there, and they, 
they, when they first see that, they always text me. Pastor James, is this what you've been talking about? Yes, isn't that neat? Go climb it. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> Here's Abram worshiping the moon, and in the midst of all his satanic worship, God says, Abram, you belong to me. I want you to go here. Where? Go here. Go this way. And then God granted Abraham the faith to trust in his promises. And then Abraham was a faithless servant for a long time. And, I mean, his wife was a faithless servant. They didn't believe God. I mean, one day, yay! Next day, whatever. We're going to have to take this matters into our own hands. We're going to have to find our own provision. And by chapter 11, we see the promise of the true Redeemer, the very one who is the seed of the woman in Abraham. And then the remaining chapters of Genesis, chapter 12 through the end, are the story of Abraham's family. Abraham's interaction and the expansion of Israel, which is a picture of God separating light from darkness, separating those who have rebelled against His provisions into a, the covenant of grace and putting the promises of the true image of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the God-man, as the pinnacle and power behind this good report. Because death is separation from God. Let's look at this text. Let's just walk through it for a second. The serpent, they were naked and not ashamed, and now they're about to be embarrassed. Now they're about to be embarrassed. The serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made. Now some people I say, see, that's why snakes are evil. Kill them all. No, they're not evil. Snakes do exactly what God has called them to do. But God purposed that the serpent would be the embodiment of the work of the enemy. And that's the end of it. If Balaam's ass can talk, so can a snake in the garden. An angel of the Lord of glory, an elect angel can speak through an animal, so then can a reprobate angel speak through an animal if the Lord wills it. So it's a simple expression, but we don't need to make much out of it. We just know that here's this snake in the garden talking to Eve. She was slithering. <laughs> Y'all didn't get that. And he asked questions of her. Did God actually say? Now see, if Eve were to lie and say yes, she would lie. She doesn't, know, she doesn't know what God said. Where was she when God said, don't eat of the tree? Inside of her husband's rib. She was a rib. <laughs> she was a rib, you know. Oh, why does my brain go there? I just jumped off a cliff here. Hold on. So we ask, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he's saying? See what he's doing? He's creating suspicion in Eve's mind. Uh, no, this is sales techniques. <laughs> That's all it is. Salesmanship. It's good stuff. Andrew Carnegie probably got his props from the devil. Socrates and the rest of them. It works. Did God say you couldn't eat of any tree? You Don't eat of any tree. Of course he didn't say that. And Adam didn't tell Eve that, but Adam added to the Word of God. Didn't he? God said to Adam, Do not eat of this tree, for when you do eat it, you will die. And that's prophetic. 
And then the devil said, did, the, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, and she quotes her husband. He's talking about whisper down the lane. Remember that game, you know? Bag of potato chips, and at the end of it is, I hate Mustangs. I mean, what? How do we get so bad? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is true, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. See, that's how I raise my children. Not wash your hands before you go to the bathroom, wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, wash your hands when you come to my kitchen under any circumstance, if you touch the refrigerator door and you haven't washed your hands, I'm going to cut them off. And see, what we do is say, if you don't wash your hands, you get a bacterial infection and you will die in your sleep. Why? Because I am obsessed with washing my hands. Ask Trey. I drove 20 minutes last night to wash my hands. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I can't help it. It's just me. I can't help it. So I tell my children, you're going to die if you don't wash. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to die if they don't wash their hands. I'm psychotic about that. I just can't help it. It's just me. I've always been like that. So Adam told Eve, if you eat of that, you're going to die. But if you touch it, you're going to die. I don't want her anywhere near it. I'm scared to death of dying. I don't even know what that means, but I don't want anything of it. <laughs> you know, what's death? I don't want anything of it. So don't touch it, woman. Please. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Don't touch it. God said don't touch it. Oh, He did? Because she's probably saying, well, what's wrong with it? Is it poisonous? I mean, you know, I bet I could make a flower arrangement out of this. We can't eat it, but can we make a flower arrangement out of it? Can we put it in the house? Can we feed it to the animals? I mean, can you see this? I mean, this is what we do, okay? I digress. He said don't touch it. Because if we touch it, we'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. And he was telling the truth in two ways. You won't die if you touch it. Because that ain't what God said. I still think touching it would have been sinful. Would have been selfish. But if you're able to touch it, you surely will eventually taste it. It's like those years ago when Abigail was a year and a half old, you know, and there's this thing on YouTube where you put a bunch of candy in front of a child and you leave the thing running. Now, if you don't eat it, you can have all of it. And Ruby did that with Abby, and it's the most adorable video. And she does it, but she does... She puts it back. <laughs> the cutest thing in the world. She tastes it, but she doesn't touch it. I mean, she doesn't eat it. You know, she's like, oh... I mean... 30 seconds, one minute, and you think it was the end of the world. This child sitting there about to go nuts and just push her face in like the cookie monster or something to eat this candy. And this, is what our, this is what the human condition is. We're told not to do something. It's what we consume about. And now suspicion has been established in the heart of Adam and, and the heart of Eve. And he says, you're not going to die if you touch it. And the second part of that truth is when she did eat of it, she didn't just... Crack. You see? And that's the way I feel about not washing hands in my house. You won't die today, but eventually, I mean, you might be 106 years old, but if you nasty hands, you're probably going to die of something one day. 
You see? You don't play with stuff like that. God says, be clean. I'm going to be clean. God says, don't eat it. Don't eat it. You're not going to die immediately. But she did die immediately. She introduced death into her body, introduced death into her soul, and introduced death into the world. Because that is the consequence of sin. Not being perfect like God is death. Well, who is He? Elohim. The righteousness. The Holy One. And you want to really settle your spirit against sovereignty and fairness. <laughs> That's like comparing sand to Mount Everest. A grain of sand, Mount Everest. I got a piece of a mountain too. Like all those pieces of the Berlin Wall back when they tore it down that came up on the market. It's not a wall, it's just a piece of rock. God's sovereignty, if you want to read Romans 9 and see just how it works. He does what He wishes. The prophets say that. He does what He wishes and what He wishes is always right and what He does is always good. The serpent said you shall not surely die. Suspicion, for God knows. Listen to these words, they're very tactful. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you're going to see what you've never seen. God did know that, right? They're going to see death. And that in seeing what you've never seen, you're going to see what God has seen and what God knows. And then in that way, you're going to be like God. It's reasonable, logical, rational. That's a good argument. It's a very good argument. And it's true. So here is the enemy, by the sovereignty of God, tempting Eve, who was innocent. And then the devil says, you're going to know good and you're going to know evil. He told her exactly what it was. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You know what? It does have some good fruit on it. It looks very familiar to the rest of the trees here. I, I'm of the opinion it wasn't any different. It wasn't a different species. It was just set apart. Sitting in the center where all the other trees were everywhere else. Because now all of a sudden she's looking at it with a different eye. Not the eye of, I don't want to touch that or I'll die. The eye is, huh, something special about that. You ever had junk in your house that had been handed down from generation to generation? It's junk, and you find this junk. You know, Let's just throw this junk away, and you get online, you look on eBay. That junk's worth $1,000. Now it's precious. Now we're buying a new container for it, not the old box that great-great-granddad had it in. Now we're putting it up on Facebook. Look what I got, a $1,000 doohickey. Let's sell it. No, let's not sell it. It's valuable. It, that the point? I mean, you know. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And she saw that it was delight to the eyes. And she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So this temptation tempted her because in her flesh she desired to know more. She desired to have a, a, an opportunity to be like God. And separation, in one sense, holiness is to live. To be separated from death and to be separated from, from, from the flesh is to live 
to be in the presence of God, but to be separated from God, to be separated from Eden, to be separated from the gospel is death. So the woman saw, she was tempted, she desired it. She, the devil lured her and there was nothing he did to make her do anything. She did it of her own volition. And it was a very crafty way. And that what it says? The servant was more crafty. This is good stuff, y'all. He's brilliant as a, as a being. So she took it and she ate it. Now I want you to picture this. And she gave it to her husband standing with her. That's what it says. She didn't eat it and go, Hey Adam, this is delicious. And he was like, No, no, no. What have you done? I mean, she's like, Okay. Here Adam. Adam, all it took for him to die was just a woman giving him something to eat. And he's like, whatever. Flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bones. Simple-minded man. By the will of God. And immediately, their eyes were opened. They weren't blind. Oh, no, we can see. No. Spiritually, they were innocent. And then their eyes were opened. And they saw they were naked. Adam, you don't have pants on. Neither do you. Oh, my gosh. I mean, imagine that. Because the connotation of nakedness throughout the entirety now of the Old Testament is negative. What happens when Noah's son mocks him in his nakedness. He's cursed. What do the other sons do? They backward mark, they moonwalk in with a blanket to cover their father up so they don't gaze upon his nakedness. Out of respect. Because public nakedness was shameful. It was an embarrassment. When do we see that? Streaking at the ball game or the drunken publics, right? Or the drug addict. That's what we see. And it's embarrassing. So all now, from the point, the rest of the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, the idea of being naked is an embarrassment, is an exposure, is a vulnerability. They were naked and not embarrassed, and they were not vulnerable because they were clothed in the goodness and the promises of God. Now their eyes are open, and they see that they're naked because they are embarrassed and they are ashamed. Death has entered into the world and into the human race, and from this point forward, from Adam until forever, until the day of glory, every person born in the world is a sinner because of Adam. And before anyone ever sins personally, they are guilty because of Adam. So we are guilty because of our father Adam in sin. We are propagated and perpetuated in progeny. Our children, our children's children, we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all justly under the wrath of God, not just because of Adam, but then also because of our personal sin. We are innately sinners. Therefore, we will sin continually. 
They were naked. And what did they do? They covered their own shame and embarrassment through their own hands, through the means that they could have at their disposal, trying to take the things that God has made and use God's creation to cover themselves up. It says loincloths. They covered their nakedness. And then they heard the sound of the Lord. And we're going to get more into this next week, but I want you to think about this for a second. I've been here. I've been in trouble before and hear Daddy's car drive up. You ever been there? <sighs> it's like that 45 minutes you wait, Mama says, well, when your Daddy gets here. And you're like, oh, I hope he has a flat tire. I hope he has to leave out of town. You know, any other day, Dad, yay, Daddy's home. It's like, oh, I hear the car. Every car that goes by, you're quenching up, you're going, I'm going to get it. I'm in trouble now. I'm going to die. Daddy's home. I mean, this is where these people were. They were hanging out, walking with God in the cool of the day, naked, not embarrassed, didn't even know anything was different, didn't even know things were... were, were they, weren't, they, weren't, they were supposed to be naked. They were clothed in the goodness of God in His presence. Now they could see it clearly. And they heard the Lord and they hid themselves. They hid themselves. You can't hide. You can't cover your own shame and you can't hide from the righteousness of God. There's only one answer. And that is that God Himself must provide a way to put together that which is separated. And the marriage, what God has put together, no man can separate. In the gospel, what God has put together, no man, even that man, can separate himself from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See? I'm not making this stuff up. Death is separation from God. Separation from God happens because we add to His promises. We add to His conditions. We add things in our own suspicion that this must be the case. We make conditions that are not taught to us simply in the sovereignty of God. Faith and repentance are not external or internal abilities. Faith and repentance is a supernatural condition that are affected by the divine power of God. So when we come to see our sin and trust in Christ, and sometimes it's not always in that order, and to believe in the promises of God, it's because God has affected faith in us. That's repentance. How do I know if I've repented? That you believe in the Son of God. Your mind has been changed by the power of God. See, humanity will always forget. Adam and Eve had faith, believe everything God had provided for them, and all it took was just one doubt and one idea of suspicion that God was withholding something good from them, and they bit it, hook, line, and sinker, just like that. And if you don't think the enemy is still at work today, pressing the very things that our flesh desires, and imagine this, in our fallen state, our desires are much worse. What in the world are we doing when we hold to the idea that we can affect our own righteousness? We forget that only God can do that. But what about obeying the Bible? Yes, obey the Bible, but don't credit it as righteousness. 
Obey the apostles for your joy and as a means to understand the faithfulness of God and sovereignty. So that we're not doing in the flesh what we can't do in the flesh, which is to make people see and reconcile things with God in any efforts. Because God is the only one who can do it. But we forget. Even Adam forgot very quickly that God had given them all life. God does not get credit for causing them to sin, even though He decreed their sin. God gets credit for throwing them out of the garden. Because that's righteousness. That's justice. Sin brings shame. For the sake of time, go to Romans chapter 6. And we'll close here today. Abigail asked me Tuesday morning what a wage was from this text. Oh, I went to Romans 3 by instinct, sorry. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. That was her memory verse for this week. And she's like, Dad, what is a wage? So I explain it like this, and I'll explain it to you the same way. Uh, our kids work at the grocery store, and when they work at the grocery store, they punch in and they punch out. And when they get through the end of the pay period, the hours that they've worked by law requires the company to give them money. If the company doesn't give them money, it's a crime because they have earned that money. No matter how hard they work or that they were there, federal law requires you to be paid if you're present. That's a wage. You earned it. So when we sin, we have punched the time clock of death and we deserve it, we owe it, God, being good and always righteous, must pay us. We will and must die because we are sinful. It is beyond fair, it is perfect. However, if I never got a job at the grocery store, Abby and no one ever worked at the grocery store, and then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, the grocery store started sending everybody in the entire household a check every week. For what? Did we earn it? No. What's it called? Free money, she says. But why? I don't know. It's a gift. It's a gift. So all we do in life is earn death, but God for us, His people, has given what we earned to Jesus, death. And given who Christ is, righteousness, to us, grace, gift. I said, so if we're getting all the checks every week and never set foot on the property, somebody's got to be earning that money. Imagine if they sent us Every time somebody worked, they sent us their check. Jesus got paid death for the sins of His people. And that is how God is good in saying, 
you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Life. My provision for you includes the payment of the wage. See, that's what the Scriptures teach us. God is sovereign in this. So all mankind fall short of the righteousness of God and are outside Eden and there is no way back in. The fiery cherubim will not let you in. Eden is gone. It's a shadow of that which is to come, which is Jesus Christ the righteous. So all mankind walk in the naked shame of Adam and in his guilt before God, and they all want their own way, not God's way. They're all suspicious of the promises of God and each other, and they want to make themselves to be like God, sometimes by using the very Scripture that shows the promises of God to their own peril, and they don't like to do it alone. They like to hand it to the man standing with them drag them to hell with everybody else. Twisting the Scripture by making it break the promises of God's good provision, which is the Gospel. And beloved, I have been in ministry for now, 23 years. I, today is the 10th year Sunday of meeting as a church, by the way. It's all on Facebook. Isn't that funny? Facebook knows more about me than I do. From that first meeting 10 years ago. And even years before that, I've always seen the fact that people don't really want clear shepherding in the truth. We want to be right. We want to know more than the guy next to us. We want to have more human confidence and call it being mature and discerning, but really it's all about being like God. We want to be like God. We want to have more knowledge than what God has provided on everything. And the Scripture promises us that there is just life in His promises. That it is a gift of grace. The Scripture warns us that we will all desire to be right in our own eyes, and that is proven the case when we ignore the simple instruction of the basic commands of living together as a people. Establishing our own way of righteousness, our own way of measuring, our own way of judgment. Of saying, no, I know what you're saying is right, but this is the way I'm going to approach it. Is sowing fig leaves, is establishing our own hope and ignoring the promises of God to create our own paths of sanctification to create our own paths of spirituality or maturity or godliness. And in the end, all these things lead to the same place, the grave. So God the Spirit helps us. He keeps us. We're not becoming like Jesus. We've been granted the grace to be counted righteous like Jesus. And one day, we will be together in the true holy of holies again forever. And until that day, we hold fast to the sovereign promise that God has said, I will send a Savior who will crush the head of the lying, suspicious, bringing serpent who entices you out of your own weak flesh. You will not die. You will not die. Because Christ has died in our place. Christ became naked and ashamed so that we could be clothed in His righteousness.
Let's pray. Father, as you teach us through Paul's writing to the Romans that we are debtors not to the flesh, but that we are debtors to righteousness. And that we aren't to fear your wrath because there is no condemnation. That we have the privilege of walking into Eden this very moment, walking into the Holy of Holies, touching the Ark of the Covenant, knowing that the blood of the Lamb that you have sent has been poured out for us. And we can call you Papa. And you look at us with an eternal love and you like us and you're glad for us to be in your presence because your righteousness has been satisfied in your wrath and in your justice that was poured out on Jesus Christ. Father, keep teaching us this great gospel, this good report. And help us to interact and relate to one another because of this goodness. Lord, that we don't shy away and hide from You. And Father, that we should not shy and hide from one another. Help us to learn to love and to live in intimacy with the greatest of faith given by Your Spirit. Because we are heirs with Christ. We are heirs to life. We are heirs... And in this present day, Father, we are going to suffer because Christ has suffered. We too shall suffer. Father, we thank You that this suffering does not end in death, but it ends in life eternal by Your sovereign grace that is completely free. In Jesus' name, Amen.